Did you notice where the liquor was when you went through my kitchen? Sure. Go make us a drink. Stalling, honey? What do I call you besides stupid? Dames. None were sassier, sexier, or more lethal than the women of film noir. They lied, stole, cheated, murdered, and just refused to conform to any standard notions of femininity. I find men very attractive. I imagine they meet you halfway. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. When most people think of noir dames, they think of femme fatales like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity or Jane Greer in Out of the Past. And while women like this help define film noir, they're only one type of female that you'll find wandering the dimly lit streets of noir. To explore the diversity of noir dames, I've invited Nora Fiore, the nitrate diva, to join me. So get ready to meet some femme fatales to die for, as well as the lady sleuth, the long-suffering wife, and the glamorous victim, as we explore more than just the usual suspects of film noir. Women in film noir sometimes get a bad rap. They can be seen as dangerous ice queens only out to get what they want, no matter how many people get killed along the way. But they also represented something exciting in terms of screen representation. They were women with agency, and they operated in a man's world and on equal footing. They might not have been role models, but damn, they were riveting and you couldn't take your eyes off them. I need to take one quick break, and then the Nitrate Diva and I will explain why we love film noir and noir dames. There's been a lot of discussion and scholarship about the types of women in noir, so we're not breaking any new ground here, but we are adding our own perspective and citing our favorite examples. So hold tight, and I'll be right back with a gallery of unforgettable noir dames. You ought to have killed me for what I did a moment ago. There's time. No, you won't. I've never stopped loving you. I was afraid and no good, but I've never stopped. Even if you hated me. Did you? Yes. But you don't now. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Welcome back. Hopefully you listened to my previous podcast of going down Noir Alley with TCM host Eddie Muller. That's where we defined what noir is and what a film needs to be defined as noir. Now I'm going to focus on just noir dames. And to do that, I have Nora Fiore, who's probably better known as the nitrate diva, to discuss the topic. We met years ago at the TCM Film Festival because we share a love of classic cinema. I wanted to have Nora on because we both love the women of film noir and don't feel that noir deserves the oft-repeated criticism of being misogynistic. Yes, I admit, noir doesn't have a lot of positive female role models, but then who wants to watch people behaving nicely and only making good decisions? (laughs) Not me. The women of noir might not be good, but they're never dull. 
I asked Nora what she thought about noir being labeled as misogynistic and whether she thought the label was accurate or fair. So as a whole, I don't see it that way. I think it's important to recognize that noir allows women to explore the full spectrum of humanity from the angelic to the demonic, um, but mostly the shadings in between. And I think it says a lot about our culture that we continue to be so fixated on the femme fatales, on the temptresses, when really that is not the case in every single noir. There is this tremendous variety of roles that women can play within film noir and I hope that's part of what we're going to be discussing today because there are good girls there are bad girls there are professional women there are women who are you know just trying to live off of what they can get from other people in life there's really a so many facets to feminine identity in noir that I, I wouldn't want to just kind of pigeonhole it as being misogynistic are there depictions of women in noir that are clearly very anxious about women's power, women's sexuality? Well, of course. Again, do I think there's probably specific examples of misogyny in noir? Yeah, I mean, sure, there there are. But I was reading a book by a scholar whom I really do respect, but he comes to this conclusion that I can't share, that noir's ideological project was that women belong in the domestic sphere, that women are dangerous when they're outside of the home. And I, I kind of had to like chuckle at that because The noir movement is this sprawling, complex thing. I don't see it as having a project. Sure, classic Hollywood is governed by the production code, which is all about enforcing traditional values and roles. But noir's project, if anything, was subverting that code (laughs) and that ideology. So even if, you know, the characters are punished in the end, their upheaval and the enjoyment we get from their rebellion, I find that kind of, you know, coded. I mean, I, I, I guess it depends on how you see it. I guess it depends on who's watching what. I'm sure some people watch noir and say, ah, see, it's proof that women are bad. And I watch it and I go... Well, that was fun. Yeah, that's a reminder to shake it up once in a while, you know. Uh, so I, I think it all, always depends. You know, ideology depends on the eye of the beholder to some extent. But to take the most baseline assumption that noir is supporting classic Hollywood's, you know, overall ideological framework of, you know, the production code, I mean, when it's subverting it in all these other ways, I think is a little, it's underselling what the movement as a whole was doing, maybe if some films are, are, are in different positions in terms of how they portray women. Well, I think the thing I loved about it was that women were behaving in ways that usually you only saw men. And they Mm -hmm. were using sexual power. They were having a lot of agency in terms of determining where their story was going. They weren't just passively along for the ride. And, you know, seeing characters like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity or Jane Greer and Out of the Past. Jeff, I've missed you. I've wondered about you. Prayed you'd understand. Can you understand? You prayed, Kathy? Can't you even feel sorry for me? I'm not going to try. Jeff. Look, just get out, will you? I have to sleep in this room. As evil as they may be, as a young girl... I was just excited to see women have so much power and exert so much kind of like direction in terms of where their story was going, even if they were going in completely the wrong direction. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to recognize the extent to which noir is tied to melodrama, which is such a female centric genre, which is all about giving, you know, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and Barbara Stanwyck and these 
incredible actresses of the era front and center the roles to grapple with moral dilemmas and family dilemmas but noir is taking it a shade darker where, where they're criminal dilemmas often in many cases so i mean you know someone like claire trevor in you know born to kill she was afraid to play that role she was kind of worried that the audience was going to hate her because she was playing such a morally compromised wicked individual perhaps you don't realize it's painful being killed piece of metal sliding into your body, finding its way into your heart, or a bullet tearing through your skin, crashing into a bone. It takes a while to die, too. Sometimes a long while. But I won't die! I tell you, you will. But I mean, it, you know, it's an incredible performance. In many ways, it may be her best performance because she, she dares to go there. So I, I, I totally agree with you in that I find something empowering in the way the women are able to drive the drama. And I, I think, you know, Eddie Muller has a great line about this, about how, you know, women are equally tempted and equally guilty in noir. And, and you know, there's something empowering about that. They're not in the supporting roles. They're, they're absolutely, you know, equal partners in whatever skullduggery is happening. Me, I'm talking about I don't want to be left out of it. Stop saying that. It's just that it hasn't worked out as we wanted. We can't go through with it, that's all. We have gone through with it, Walter. The tough part is all behind us. We just have to hold on now and not go soft inside. Stick close together the way we started out. Watch it. And we've touched on this a little bit, but what is it about these noir dames that is attractive and that is really setting them off as different from what we had been seeing before? Well, in many ways, I would argue that they are not so very different. When you look at the powerful, nuanced women of the pre-code era, we see a lot of the same issues, a lot of the same problems of being dragged into a life of crime, of trying to make ends meet, of having to use your sexual capital in a way that is sometimes not comfortable for you or has unintended consequences. Some of the women bridge both of those eras. You know, Joan Bennett, Joan Crawford, Mary Astor, Barbara Stanwyck. Well, the future looks very bright. Just as I was leaving the cemetery, Ed Sipple made me a proposition. And last night, the manager of the star and guard of Burlesque House offered me a job in the chorus to do a strip act. A strip act? Yeah, show my shape. What's going to become of you? It's up to you to decide. If you stay in this town, you are lost. Where would I go, Paris? I got four bucks. That's what makes me mad with you. You're a coward. I mean it. You let life defeat you. You don't fight back. What chance has a woman got? More chance than men. A woman, young, beautiful like you, can get anything she wants in the world because you have power over men. But you must use men, not let them use you. You must be a master, not a slave. Look, here. Nietzsche says, all life, no matter how we idealize it, is nothing more nor less than exploitation. That's what I'm telling you. Exploit yourself. Go to some big city where you will find opportunities. Use men. Be strong. Defiant. Use men to get the things you want. But I think what really does make the noir dames different is that now we do have the production code, that there was this backlash against the moral liberties of the pre-code era. So it's a little more twisted for darkness. They're not just dealing with these situations in a very mature, open, straightforward way, but it's kind of like they're dealing with these situations with this added layer of constraint that is making it have to be twisted now, that is making it have to be a little bit of a 
casting a slight moral judgment on it, which is perhaps why noir can get a little, um, you know, is, is perceived by some people as being misogynistic. They have to be punished in the end now for their transgressions, which gives the stories kind of a darker flavor. No, I never loved you, Walter, not you or anybody else. I'm rotten to the heart I used you, just as you said. That's all you ever meant to me. Until a minute ago, when I couldn't fire that second shot. I never thought that could happen to me. Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. I'm not asking you to buy, just hold me close. Goodbye, baby. I think another thing, too, is that, you know, you have World War II's influence on the culture. Um, so women had been taking on these roles, keeping the home front going, Rosie the Riveter, all that stuff. So there's a sense of competence of having entered a little bit more of a man's world that you get as a result of World War II. But also they're, they're now racked with doubts. Uh, you know, they've kind of been put back in their place after the war. And I think there's also in, in the noir movement era, there's this psychological interest where you have this element of Freudian theories and just this fascination with neurosis, with probing disturbed mental states. So there's a little bit more maybe of a psychological angle of the portrayal of women in noir instead of just looking at their behavior or their role in society like you see in pre-code. You know, maybe a little bit more of, oh, let's probe deep into the mind of what made her do this, what made her so so warped, what made her so unhinged, you know, that, that kind of slant to it. But I mean, I do think that there's a lot in common between the portrayals of women in the pre-code era and film noir in that they're kind of outlaws within a culture you know it may be in pre-code they're living on the margins of society whether they're kept women or they're you know they're entertainers or whatever in in film noir they're almost become outlaws within a culture they're the desperado in an apron in the kitchen now you know they're kind of that underground is coming back up into the domestic sphere and into the everyday life that i think is a really kind of fascinating contradiction where this stuff that was maybe front and center before now has to take a little bit more of a oblique angle to get into the films. Um, and I, I just find those contradictions really fascinating. I'll hock my guns and give us enough dough to make another start. There isn't enough money in those guns for the kind of start I want. But I want things, a lot of things, big things. I don't want to be afraid of life or anything else. I want a guy with spirit and guts. A guy who can laugh at anything, who'll do anything. A guy who can kick over the traces and win the world for me. Look, I don't want to look in that mirror and see nothing but a, a stick-up man staring back at me. You better kiss me goodbye, Bart. Because I won't be here when you get back. Now we're going to talk about the diversity of women that are in noir, but let's start with kind of the defining, one of the defining icons of noir, which is the femme fatale. This is usually the female character who is alluring, seductive, but dangerous because she can be deceitful or lethal. But we share a couple of favorite femme fatales. And so let's start with Jane Greer's Kathy and Out of the Past, which is one of my all-time favorite noirs and one of my all-time favorite female characters. You know, you're a curious man. You're going to make every guy you meet a little bit curious. That's not what I mean. You don't ask questions. You don't even ask me what my name is. All right, what's your name? Kathy. I like it. 
Or where I come from? I'm thinking about where we're going. Don't you like it in here? I'm just not ready to settle down. Shall I take you somewhere else? You're going to find it very easy to take me anywhere. You know, I'm a much better guy than Jose Rodriguez. Want to try me? Why is she one of your favorites? I admire the control of her performance more than anything. Greer was instructed by the director, by Jacques Tourneur, to remain en passive, as he said, with no big eyes. And boy, she did it. It is such a subtle performance. It's such an elegant performance. She is never overacting the character. In many ways, she is the perfect counterpart to Mitchum, who is so understated. And I think that's another reason maybe why noir resonates so well today, because in, in many cases, the acting style is this laconic, low-key performance style that I, I think plays very well with the naturalism that modern audiences expect as opposed to the more presentational styles you might see in, in you know, maybe more typical melodrama, although you, you do get full tilt performances in noir as well. But I mean, Greer, she's so young. She's in her early 20s. She looks young, and yet she is so frighteningly poised and sure of herself in the way she navigates these dangerous waters. I think that contradiction is fascinating. You know, that scene where the men are fighting in the cabin and they're having this really brutal fist fight. And she doesn't look scared. She doesn't look worried. She just is watching them for the exact right moment. You didn't have to kill him. You wouldn't have killed him. You would have beaten him up and thrown him out. You didn't have to do it. You wouldn't have killed him. It had been against us, gone to wit. She has been in this situation before. She knows how to handle situations like this. And I think it's that sense of mastery that she has, even when the tide seems to be turning against her, that is so fascinating. Um, she's also a bit of a shapeshifter, you know, in Acapulco, she's this dream woman, this, this romantic object. And then she'd come along like school was out. And everything else was just a stone you sailed at the sea. I didn't know you was a little. I'm taller than Napoleon. You're prettier, too. Do you miss me? No more than I would my eyes. Where should we go tonight? Let's go to my place. But then she can turn into this icy killer. She can be the scared mistress, and you wonder, oh, you know, this poor woman, you know, what has she gone through? Is she being victimized in this situation? She just, she goes through so many transformations, and I love her chemistry with Mitchum. I do think a lot of femme fatales are so icy to the point where they maybe become a little unrelatable. You just kind of wonder, is there really anything to you besides your love of money and your desire to manipulate other people? But Greer really captures this romantic spark with Mitchum that I think is beautiful and really makes this film so appealing that it is a, a doomed love story. More than anything, it is a twisted love story of these people who kind of can't quit each other. No, we're starting all over. I want to go back to Mexico. I want to walk out of the sun again and find you waiting. I want to sit in the same moonlight and tell you all the things I never told you. Until you don't hate me. Until sometime you love again. They'll always be looking for us. They won't stop till we die. I don't care. Just so they find us together. If you're thinking of anyone else, don't. Wouldn't work. You're no good for anyone but me. You're no good and neither am I. That's why we deserve each other. You know, at the end of the movie, she could skip off. She could leave town, leave him holding the bag. But no, she waits for him. And ultimately, 
that proves her undoing. Hopefully that's not too much of a spoiler. I mean, it is a noir. We know this isn't going anywhere good. Um, so I, I just, I love that performance. I love her interplay with Mitchum. And I just think it's fantastically controlled and beautiful and understated performance. Well, the other thing about being understated is you can't, she doesn't give you anything to read. So mm. you can't tell, is she telling the truth? Would you believe Baby, I don't care. So it makes her this character that you can never quite size up. And that's what keeps her, I think, so interesting through it. And that's why, you know, Mitchum has such a hard time dealing with her, too, because was she in love with him? Was she not? Should he trust her this time? You know, and it keeps you going. Yeah. To what extent are her motives determined by what factor in her nature? She really does a great job of keeping you guessing. And something that was interesting I read in an old movie magazine somewhere was that she was really incredible at imitating both Mitchum and Kirk Douglas, that she had the crew in stitches doing <laughs> imitations of them kind of trying to out tough guy each other. And I think that speaks a lot to her performance because she is one of the tough guys, right? She her her presence, though, very you know feminine and desirable is in no way less tough, less hard-boiled than any of the men in the movie. I'm not so sure this is a bright idea. You think of a brighter one on the way, come back with it. She is utterly recognizable as part of their breed and their world. So I think just the way she can kind of stand toe-to-toe with these tremendously macho, you know, or, or tough dudes is, is really impressive, too. I remember watching this film in film class when I was in college, and... Seeing it on the big screen, I remember I was struck by how, through the course of the film, the quality of the light that she shot in changes. And then I saw her coming out of the sun, and I knew why we didn't care about that 40 grand. And then the next time we see her, it's like moonlight. And then the next time we see her... It was dark when I was getting there, and then I saw her walking up the road in the headlights. It's a transformation that she has not just through her character, but just through the visual kind of presentation that uh, she's given in the film. Definitely, yeah. I read that they even intentionally wanted to make her costumes go always in a gradation from light to dark, but somehow there was a mix-up, so there it's not a perfect <laughs> progression, but it, it's pretty darn close. I mean, definitely by the end when she's in that, like, nun-like traveling costume, she's so severe. It could not be more different from the way she looks at the beginning, where she's this breezy dream woman, you know, stepping out of the sun into the cantina. And I, I love that, fi- you know, one of the final shots of her, where for the first time, you really see almost like a mask slip. And it's maybe the only time in the movie where she is not en passive, where she really, her face is contorted and you go, whoa. At the last minute, you know, the mask falls and you see the the humanity and the scared woman who might have been there all along, or, or maybe it was just coming out at the very end, you know, because death is the one, the one player in her life she can't seduce her way out <laughs> of, you know, she, that's, that's the one who's coming for her and, and will not be vamped off of the case. I need to take one last break, and then I'll be back with Nora Fiore, the nitrate diva, to continue our discussion of noir dames. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. 
Welcome back. I want to wrap up the discussion of Femme Fatales with Nora Fiore, the nitrate diva, so we can move on to look at some of the other types of noir dames. But one of the attractions of these Femme Fatales is their ability to be on very equal footing with men. Part of that is the wonderful exchanges of dialogue you get, where they're smart and sassy and hold their own completely with their male counterparts. Well, where's your husband, Mrs. Johnson? I don't know. Did he see the killer? I don't know. Should we dance? Why don't you drop dead? Yes, absolutely. I love the all the, the banter and the chit-chat that makes noir so appealing. You know, these kind of little meet-cute scenes where they're, you know, they're sizing each other up uh, is, is really very delightful. Is it okay? That isn't a way to play. Why not? Because it isn't a way to win. Is there a way to win? Well, there's a way to lose more slowly. Les recettes rouge et manque. I prefer it like that. Chunk it in. Don't you like to gamble? Not against a wheel. Tell me why you're so hard to please. Takes me where I can tell you. All right. I mean, there are certainly noirs where you feel like the repartee is a little more sassy. And out of the past, it almost has the sense of like drifting into the current. It's a very different kind of melding together than what you see in, say, you know, Double Indemnity, where they're, you know, rattling off this great Billy Wilder and uh, Raymond Chandler, you know, wisecracks at each other. We should tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As for instance? Phyllis. Melissa. I think I like that. But you're not sure. I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. So it's interesting how many different variations exist within that. I have a friend who we, we showed, he showed out of the past, and he referenced that scene that you talked about, which is where she's watching those men, Robert Mitchum and his partner, fighting. And his comment was, oh, well, poor Kathy, she's such a victim in all this. And, you know, to me, I never read her as a victim. I mean, she may have made some bad choices, but um, I don't feel like she turned to this kind of life because, like, she, she had been a victim of something. I mean, it seems like she kind of made a choice, like, this is... I want these things, and this is how I'm going to get them. And I don't read her as much as a victim as um, as my friend did, I think. And I was curious how you felt about it. I guess I'm inclined to disagree with the idea of her being purely a victim. I think there are some women in noir that we are encouraged to see a lot more as a victim of their circumstances as they've been trapped by the situation or they made a choice based on their emotions that turned out to be really bad for them. I wouldn't say she was 
forced into the life she was living. I mean, she is a tough, beautiful woman who wants luxury and excitement. She wants the best deal she can get out of this world. I mean, she shot wit and took his 40 grand. <laughs> Nobody forced her to do that. You know, she could have just run out. Um, you know, I'm sure she could be living a quiet, law-abiding life if she wanted to, but that that's not the person she is. Like she tells Jeff, we're no good for anybody else. They, they need that forbidden charge. Although I do think that the film shows the violence that she faces. And while that doesn't excuse or explain her actions entirely, we do understand that a certain milieu has contributed to the way she is, right? The scene where Wit just slaps her around. Dirty little phony. Go on, lie some more. Tell me how you handle things for me in San Francisco. Tell me it was all Joe's idea. Go on, Kathy. Show me how you're gonna squirm your way out this time. What a sucker you must think I am. That's hard to forget. You can see that that thought hardening into her eyes of like, I'm really going to kill him this time. And she gets that line at the end about how she wishes she could tell Jeff all the things that she wishes he knew about her. So kind of explaining that there might be some extenuating circumstances that life hasn't been easy for her. But I don't think that the film wants us to see her as oh poor Kathy or anything like that I mean I think that there is a, a you know she has succumbed to temptation she has embraced the dark side and I think she can still be sympathetic she can we can still accept the fact that maybe there are circumstances that forced her into that without excusing her or flattening her into a victim Now, another femme fatale that is a favorite of both of ours is Elizabeth Scott in Too Late for Tears. She plays Jane. And, you know, while Kathy is kind of given to us as a woman who is dangerous, I mean, the first piece of information we get about her is that she shot Witch, she stole his money, and, you know, <laughs> Mitchum needs to go after her. So we, we never see her in any situation kind of other than this very kind of noir, dark, shadowy world. But Jane is presented to us initially as kind of this loving wife in a, you know, we see her with her husband. Fate kind of drops this thing in their lap, which is they're driving on a road, somebody throws money in their car, and it's suddenly that kind of opportunity to have this, you know, sudden influx of money makes her either a completely different person or taps into something that's always been lurking there. But she's an interesting femme fatale in that we kind of see her before that transformation, but man, when she turns, she is one fascinating and dangerous character. Yes, although it's interesting you say loving wife, though, because the first conversation we hear her having with her husband from the beginning is a very materialistic one, right? I, I tried to tell you before we left Toma, just don't like being patronized, that's all. I, I don't think I could take another evening of it. Patronized? Oh, sweetheart, Ralph is one of the nicest you guys. No, it isn't, Ralph. This diamond-studded wife looking down her nose at me like, like a big ugly house up there looks down on Hollywood. So I think you really, from the very start, get a sense of her pathology. Maybe we are surprised at how competent she is at this whole <laughs> femme fatale thing, given her lack of previous experience. And unlike Kathy, who's kind of a you know professional at, at, at handling these kinds of characters. But I, I, the thing I do love about Too Late for Tears is it's suggesting that maybe the domestic life can make you just as rotten and just as dangerous as a life on the outskirts of society, you know, living among gangsters and, and private eyes and gamblers and all these types of people. Um, and I do think in many ways, 
she's a much colder fish than Kathy, you know, because Kathy, there's some undeniable something going on between her and, and Jeff. You know, she feels for him on some level in a way that, you know, may even be kind of her, her doom. But, you know, Jane, no, she's, she's, it's the money. It's the greenbacks that really, you know, get her excited. I love, I love how from the very first, you know, the moment that money lands in their car and they're being pursued, like she's suddenly like a stunt driver at the wheel. Like it just, it awakened this thing that has been lurking in her. And you do get this story about her, her, you know, her, you get some backstory on her about this, this first marriage that was, again, you know, her materialism pulling her into a situation that, you know, it's unclear exactly what happened there, but but was doomed to another man that that she kind of is very representative, uh, like she's internalized the keeping up with the Joneses thing, but twisted it to its darkest version of it. And that's what I uh, one thing I really do love about Too Late for Tears is, you know, it's 1949. Everybody knows Double Indemnity, huge hit. You know, they've been making these kinds of films for a long time. It's fascinating to see how quickly noir becomes kind of self-aware. And I think I love Too Late for Tears because Roy Huggins, who's, you know, just a very clever writer, is kind of taking this character of the homicidal housewife, you know, the, the Barbara Stanwyck type, and, and really just pushing it to absolute extremes and saying, like, let's make it she's not just, you know, going to get some schmo to help her do this like she's suddenly a stunt driver she's suddenly tougher than dan Dorier. she's suddenly poisoning people help you do what you've got no other choice we can't just wait and let her kill us i didn't mean to kill alan but it's done and now it's our lives against hers we kill her huh do you really think you can get away with that yes kathy was all wrapped up in alan she missed work today she's what the papers will call despondent she She's going to take poison because of it. You're going to get it for me. Sorry, Mrs. Palmer. And I love Elizabeth Scott's performance where you, you you just believe that this has been festering inside of her all along. You know, you're never like, wait, you can't do that. You're like, yeah, you've probably been thinking about killing somebody for a long time. You know, just, just kind of accept it. So I, I love that performance. Another one, that's another one where I feel like um, she's kind of humorless. Like it's such a funny film, but she herself is rather humorless. Like so much of the humor is coming from Dan Dorier's character who's got, you know, all these incredible lines about, you know, don't ever change tiger you know she, she says i couldn't kill alan i tried to convince myself i could kill him but when the time came i couldn't do it how did he die pneumonia it was an accident that that has some of the best banter of any nor i just love that film it's hilarious and it's just so funny to watch dan dorier muscle into her life doing his thing slapping her around and the character thinks he's so in control and and finding out quite quickly that he's out of his depth here you know you, it, i just love the way she turns the tables on him i think that's a such a cleverly written film did you get it the best duchess nothing but the best for you duchess i say let's kill these people in style there's enough there to kill most of the people you don't like now let me hold that little bottle while you go fix me a drink. You've had enough to drink. You know what the man said who sold me this? He said, I didn't look like the type of guy he was used to dealing with. I looked him right in the eye. And I said, you mean I don't look like a killer, huh? You know what he said? He said, no, you don't. <laughs> I wonder what he would have said if you'd bought the stuff, Tiger. 
and one that I, I enjoy watching over and over and over again. And she really comes darn close to getting away with it in that, you know, it, it's, I, I really, um, it's, it's kind of giddy how, how, uh, you know, her, her run on the border and, um, yeah, it's just a, a very, very fun film. There's also a point at which, uh, you know, Dan Durier muscles his way into her apartment by pretending to be a cop. And then he, he challenges her and he says, like, hey, look, if you were innocent, you never would have let me come in. You'd have been screaming for that warrant and sending wires to your congressman. So let's cut the small talk. Where's my dough? Then you're not a policeman. Only on my mother's side, honey. Where's the dough? Those things in the kitchen happen to belong to my sister-in-law. And I let you in because, well, housewives can get awfully bored sometimes. And right? she gives him this look until that. you get, you know, you get this sense that, man, is this what, you know, she's been thinking about all this time that she's left at home while her husband's out at work, that she's just sitting at home bored, contemplating, well, how can I murder people? Well, that poison's good. That would work. <laughs> or, you know, there's that gun. You know, you definitely get the sense that Jane Palmer has seen Double Indemnity, <laughs> right? Like, you just, you get the sense that she has been going to the movies on her all, you know, her, her occasionally and, and thinking, I could do that. I could do that better than her. Her, her technique's terrible. Um, and, you know, just again, I feel like Jane Palmer herself, like, the, she's kind of a meta femme fatale, you know, she's kind of you get the sense that she she knows what she is and what she's doing and has probably been picking up some tips all along from, uh, you know, from some of the pros she's seen on the movie screen or in hard-boiled novels or something. She just seems like the type. Well, it's interesting because her husband seems so oblivious to who she <laughs> is. So I think when I said, like, she's a loving wife, I think it's more like the vision we see of her is kind of through his eyes initially because he's... So like, oh, you don't want to do that. Oh, we, you want to do the right thing. He seems so completely blind to what her potential is and what lurks inside her heart if she has one. That it's really interesting. And he, she even fools Dan Durier too. I mean, he doesn't even guess the depths to which she can go. One of the moments in the film that always makes me laugh the most is right after the husband has given her one of these pep talks about, you'll forget the money, Jane. We'll be so much happier without it. And he pulls her into this embrace. And as he pulls her in the embrace, you, and see, you see her face. And it is like stone cold, like, no. <laughs> you know, it is just like her eyes are wide open. Like, I cannot think of the thought of living without this money now. I just, it's just such a hilarious moment of like, he could not be more clueless about who she is. You know, and I feel like that's kind of what that movie is about. Is like, who is your wife really? You know, is it the woman that you see before you hug her? Or is it the woman whose face is over your shoulder making this, I want the money face? <laughs> You know, the kind of the dual identity of Jane Palmer. That's such a charming film. So these are kind of classic, fairly classic femme fatales. And, and these are the kind of characters that I think people think of immediately when they think of the film noir woman. But you pointed out that you feel like there's a greater diversity to this and you've actually thought of some categories. So to kind of prove that diversity, let's start with the character you call the self-reliant entertainer and who are the best examples of that? Well, one of the things, you know, 
people see a lot in noir is, you know, there's so many movies about private eyes, there's so many movies about detectives, but I was trying to think of what is really the equivalent of the professional detective man in noir, because most of the women who are detecting are more amateurs. And I feel like the professional woman that you see a lot in noir is this entertainer type, you know, this, this nightclub singer or performer who is kind of a transient character. She knows how to take care of herself in a way that is not really threatening. You know, the femme fatale's intelligence is often weaponized against somebody, this self-reliant entertainer. She's just trying to make a living. She's just trying to live her life. You know, she's tough, but she's tough in a very defensive, self-protective way and not in a way that's like designed to, you know, put off or hurt anybody else. She's kind of a live and let live kind of character. Um, and I think one of the great examples of this is the character Ida Lupino plays in The Man I Love and also in Roadhouse. I thought you'd be as smart as you were. Listen, when I want to leave, I'll let you know. I came out of here with a contract. I needed the dough. And I'm going to collect every nasty little cent of it. Maybe more. Who knows, before I'm through, you might be running for the deep hole. Don't try to borrow two bits from me when you shove off. Now, look, baby, I'm not trying to rush you. Silly boy. Very similar character um, of this nightclub singer who really has a tremendous mastery of almost any situation she can be in. She helps other people where she can. She maybe is a little sassy, might be a little jealous, might be a little cynical at times, but in the end, we know she has a heart of gold. Uh, you know, in The Man I Love, I, I always think of Ida Lupino as being the female equivalent of what Raymond Chandler said about Humphrey Bogart, that he was tough without a gun. And I'm getting good and tired of this brush off. Brush off? Whatever made you think you were in? I'm declaring myself in right now. Now listen. Shut up. Not bad. Not good. That's Ida Lupino. She's tough without a gun. In The Man I Love, she slaps a gun right out of a guy's hand. You know, in Roadhouse, uh, she's, she's tough without a gun. She's also tough with a gun. I won't say more too much more about that, but you know. She just has this incredible skill set. She can sing, she can protect herself, she can match any of these guys, but she also has this feminine skill set too. You know, she can improvise a bathing suit out of two scarves, you know. She can kind of be the the therapist friend in the man I love and, and help everybody understand their their lives better. But you know, she also has her secret wounds and troubles. So I you know, I think this type of character of a woman who has a job, but a job that is outside the pale of like middle class respectability. She's not a secretary. Mm -hmm. She's, you know, she's not a nurse. You know, she's, she's an entertainer. She's mixing in maybe some seedy company sometimes, but she's a good guy. She's unmistakably a good guy. And as perceived by, you know, the, the characters in the film. Another great example of this, I think, is Veronica Lake in This Gun for Hire, who is a magician nightclub <laughs> performer uh, who has these fabulous routines where she's dressed as a fisherman or she's pulling doves out of the air but you know she's such a resourceful sympathetic character and she has such a pure reputation you know in spite of being mixed up with the louche world of, of nightclub culture that she's even recruited as a spy to vamp the bad guys and get information on them in this complex plot read the papers mm, movie columns gossip columns football how about your history books remember benedict arnold sure the first all-American heel. <laughs> There's a handful of those heels in this country today, and they're powerful enough to sabotage our defense. We're trying to expose them. It's okay by me. My committee thinks Gates is one of them. Him? The nightclub angel? In the daytime, he's an executive at Nitrochemical. 
In between times, he's been seeing men that are suspected of being foreign agents. Yet our investigators can't turn up anything definite. And that's where I come in? Will you give it a try? No, it isn't exactly like deciding to go to a beauty parlor. But, you know, even Alan Ladd, who's the killer, ultimately can see in her this decency that kind of redeems him in the end. Uh, you know, another example of this might be Anne Sheridan in Nora Prentice, where, uh, you know, the guy becomes fixated on her, but she's she's just trying to make a living. She's just trying to live and let live as this nightclub singer. You know, she might be involved in some places that would seem a little seedy or disrespectable to, you know, the uh, snotty, you know, or, or kind of conventional people, but she herself is you know, unmistakably decent, unmistakably. She's kind of navigating the world with her own moral compass. And so I just, it's nice to see these women who are outside of the traditional, uh, you know, respectable female middle-class roles, but are, the films are really communicating that they have this strong moral compass that guides them as they're navigating these, uh, you know, difficult situations. Well, you mentioned that these are kind of like the counterpoint to the gumshoe. And In that sense, too, they reflect these characters who convey a certain moral ambiguity because they work in professions that mainstream America probably looks at as kind of not, maybe not 100% up and up. Like they they do consort with like seedy characters or entering a terrain that's a, a little bit nebulous. But they both have this very strong kind of personal code, like that code will not break. They will, you know, stick to that. And I think that's interesting that they share that across uh, these gender roles. Absolutely, yes, that they may mix with crime, that they may have to rub shoulders with gangsters, but they would never do anything wrong. You just kind of trust them morally um, to be the the center of their films. You know, a little bit outside of the the nightclub singer, another one like this for me is Susan Hayward in Deadline at Dawn. And she really is overlapping kind of with the sleuth characters and she helps unravel the mystery where she's a taxi dancer. What did you want to do, Miss Goff, when you were 12 years old? Marry John Barrymore. Look, do we have to talk? What are you, an author or something? Conversation is very necessary, it seems to me, as my father says. Why? Why? What would life be without conversation? That's another, you know, female profession that's beyond the pale of of normal respectability. And, you know, but her street smarts and her understanding of the city make her able to, uh, you know, help a guy who's in need of help. You know, she's kind of cranky, she's tired, she's cynical, she's jaded, but there's a goodness in her that you just can't miss. Um, and, and it's really very charmingly portrayed. So I love this character of the, the woman who's living on, who lived on her own. She can take care of herself. Um, but, you know, as you say, you just kind of don't doubt that there is a personal code that's driving her behavior that makes her morally kind of the equal of the the private eye the good private eyes there's yes. plenty of crooked private eyes in noir too but you know kind of the the philip marlowe who's the the sir galahad and you know uh, getting pushed in the alley kind of guy well and before we leave the self-reliant entertainer i just want to point out that ida lupino was kind of that in a certain way behind the scenes because she ended up Directing, being one of the very few women who directed a noir with The Hitchhiker. Face front. And keep driving. Sure, I'm Emmett Myers. Do what I tell you. And don't make no fast moves or a lot of dead heroes back there get nervous. From now on, while you're driving, keep both hands high on that wheel. And you, keep one hand along the top of this seat. The other hand high on that window. All right. 
Now turn off the next side road we come to. You know, she proved to be quite competent in, you know, the behind the scenes world of Hollywood in terms of doing things that not a lot of women got to do at that time. Absolutely. I mean, The Hitchhiker is such a harrowing film. And it's interesting because it's about men being forced in situations where they have to be kind of passive and just live to fight another day, waiting it out and seeing how little the the macho antics are really useful when you're facing a guy with a gun, you know, pointed in your face, how you really just have to wait it out and, and, and you know, how that really is, is adding this tension to them. They feel so powerless and so helpless. Another film, I'm not sure I'd call it straight up noir, but um, the outrage which she did about rape is, I mean, one of the most devastating films I have ever seen. Please, please somebody help me! It certainly has a noirish flair, especially the scenes where um, the girl is being pursued by her attacker. I mean, definitely, I think, you know, within the noir movement and just really um, such a talented woman, Ida Lupino. Taxi! Taxi! I'm sorry that I need to cut off my discussion with Nora Fiore, but this just wraps up part one of our discussion of noir dames. We'll be back to finish our exploration of the diverse array of women in noir by looking to such notable examples as Lucille Ball as the Lady Sleuth and Rita Hayworth as the glamorous victim. I hope this discussion will inspire you to seek out some of the noirs we've discussed and then come back to hear the rest of our discussion of noir dames. You didn't tell me if you wanted that drink. And you didn't tell me where you put my dough. I don't have your dough. Let us not haggle. We're not going to. My husband has the money, and two days from now, he's going to turn it over to the police. You don't tell me. Nice story. Better than yesterday. I like that trick with your eyes, too. Oh, I'm just taking my cue like a little gentleman. You're taking it a little too fast. Isn't that what you wanted? Remember to check out Cinema Junkie's companion videos from the Geeky Gourmet, because I'll show you how to make some noir desserts in glorious black and white, and how to serve up the perfect crime scene. You can find the videos and more podcasts at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. I'd like to acknowledge the talented team that makes Cinema Junkie happen. Podcast coordinator, Kinsey Moreland. Technical director, Rebecca Chacon. And director of sound design, Emily Jankowski. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs. Featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at CandlewoodArtsFestival.org.